Who gets to write the great blockbuster movies of our time? In Hollywood, screenwriting has operated substantially through a network of, no, not talent, but nepotism. If you don't know the right people or don't have the right uncle, you need not apply. Setting out to change that landscape is Franklin Leonard. And the Oscar goes to Argo. Spotlight. Slumdog Millionaire, The King's Speech. Diablo Cody. Graham Moore, The Imitation Game. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Art of Power. I'm Arthi Shahani. Today, Franklin Leonard. He had a goal to uplift Hollywood's best screenplays, like the actual best. So he created The Blacklist an annual survey of the greatest scripts never made, connecting the biggest names in Hollywood, not with more of their friends and family, but with talented outsiders. Imagine trying to put together a roster for an NBA team with just the people known personally by the owners of the team. <laughs> right? Like, you're not going to win a game. You're probably not going to score a point. Of the last 13 best pictures at the Oscars, nearly a third appeared on the blacklist. We discuss how stifling diverse stories cost Hollywood billions of dollars, how creating the blacklist was a subversive act, and how, despite Leonard's success, he gets a lot of no's. And the best revenge is to keep moving and prove them wrong. So, like, keep it moving and wave to them when you figure it out. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. There's a story Franklin Leonard likes to tell. It's about the entertainment industry, about how an image has the power to change the culture, and it's also about the famed abolitionist Frederick Douglass. So the Frederick Douglass story goes a little bit like this, right? Frederick Douglass escapes enslavement, uh, moves to New York, and it's a fact becoming more and more popular, to quote um, our former president, that Frederick Douglass was the most photographed American of the 19th century. And I think most of us who uh, are familiar with his name can immediately conjure the image of Frederick Douglass's portraits, right? And they're very specific. You know, he sort of ridge-backed, uh, the a high collar, the large black and white hair, the, the large, you know, he, he is asserting his personhood in every single one of those photos. And, and they stood in sort of radical opposition to a lot of images that circulated of, of black people at that time. And, and after, um, it is entirely feasible to believe that outside of the United States, especially given Douglas's travels, he would have been the visual representation of an American to Mm. the highest volume of people globally. And yet, there was no movie made about Frederick Douglass in the 20th century. There was no, there is still, to this day, been no Frederick Douglass biopic. It speaks to who is choosing which stories to make and the consequence of them. Franklin Leonard grew up a military brat. His family moved around a lot. Yeah, and I had a, a, an army colonel, neonatologist doctor father, and a, a middle school science teacher mother. Interesting. They kept us in line, for sure. 
He was born in Hawaii, spent a few years in Germany, but he spent the bulk of his adolescence in the Deep South, Columbus, Georgia. And as I've listened and read up on you, you make it a point to say that you had a comfortable upper middle class upbringing. Absolutely. um, That you went to an affluent private school, uh, I think one of the only or only child of color among a sea of white students. Yeah, one of a very, a very small group. Yeah. And then you ended up teaching high school calculus while you were in high school? Yeah, I was a bit of a math nerd. That was my thing. Um, yeah, that's like the nerdiest of nerdy facts I've come across in a long time. <laughs> yeah, no. I, basically, I was sort of overseeing my friends who were taking calculus my senior year, which basically meant that we just like hung out in like a teacher's lounge and, you know, they just did the work. So like it might be a bit of an overstatement that I taught the class, but effectively that was my role. I don't know. It seems weird to brag about these things like 30 years later. Yeah, no. Well, it actually has the effect, I think, conversely, of not being a brag so much, but kind of <laughs> giving you... I was Steve Urkel in high school is the easiest way to explain it. It was That was definitely me. I was Steve Urkel while Steve Urkel was on television. It wasn't great for my social life. Did you wear your pants that high up? Uh, no, didn't have suspenders, didn't wear my pants high up. It was more personality than, than attire, but I just was not cool. I just was like the least cool person imaginable in high school, in my mind. One of the things from Leonard's childhood that sticks out, he was always drawn to movies. And the first film his mom let him go see by himself was Jurassic Park. I remember seeing it three times opening weekend, and I think it was, you know, one of those moments that I think we all have with the arts in one way or another, where you're, you know, left in a state of awe by what is possible. And I think that looking back now, it was definitely a seminal moment in the evolution of, of my career and, and my understanding of the, the potential and power of, of storytelling in the arts, especially at a commercial scale. Jurassic Park is not like... Um it's not a message film per se. It's not, I don't immediately think of it as the thing that would prompt you to dive into film with a mission. People say, oh, well, this movie's not explicitly political. But if anybody on earth could force or convince tens of millions of people to listen to anybody talk for 90 minutes about anything, I think we would understand that that is a fundamentally political act. That act has an effect on the world. And when you think about the number of people that are seeing movies in their homes, in movie theaters, in any given day, in any given year, one has to think about what is the effect of that many people having a shared narrative experience as they go back into their lives after having had it. What specifically about Jurassic Park was so powerful? I mean, I think it was the dinosaurs and the score. Uh, if I if I think back to it uh, fundamentally, and maybe it was just the combination of sort of a moment of freedom for myself of being allowed to go to a movie theater by myself at, at my preteen age, but it was also sitting in a movie theater and, and not thinking about anything else for two hours and knowing that everybody else that was like was having that same experience and and, and then wanting to have it again. So it was the context, the sacred context of I'm in this place collectively with these other people in the dark, taking in something for two hours. It's not unlike the pilgrimage that people make to various religious buildings around the world once a week, right? And in in all of those cases, someone is telling a story about what it means to be human. And in that story gives us guidance about how we should live 
when we leave. Um, so yeah, I think it, I think it's immensely powerful. Despite that early interest, Leonard did not pursue the movie business. He was a math and science kid with math and science parents. He thought he might be a doctor, and he got into Harvard. Uh, I realized very quickly at Harvard that there's a difference between being really good at math in Georgia and being really good at math in Harvard. Uh, folks <laughs> who are really good at math at Harvard when eventually go on to win Fields Medals and MacArthur Genius Grants, as some of my classmates did. He decided to study politics and social studies. He graduated Harvard magna cum laude, and then he went to work for McKinsey, the consultiest consulting company there is. And Leonard said it was not a fit. He was happy when they laid off a bunch of people, including him. He got severance, and he found himself at an impasse. I realized that I was spending all of my time watching movies or reading about the film industry, trying to understand how it functioned. And I realized that, you know, growing up, I loved movies and television. That Jurassic Park moment was a seminal moment for me. The day that I got my driver's license, I drove to Blockbuster and rented all three Godfather movies and watched them back to back to back, right? Like, Mm -hmm. big nerd energy. Mm -hmm. Um, But... It had never occurred to me to work in the film industry because I wasn't an actor. I had no reason to think of myself as a director, and I didn't know the other jobs that existed. And it was more realistic to me that I could have been an astronaut who went to the moon than it was that I could have gone out to Hollywood and worked in the film industry. That is a striking statement. Does that say something about the industry? Oh, absolutely. Hollywood, at the highest level, the film industry in particular, is the least diverse business sector in American business. Um, And so statistically speaking, just in terms of the numbers of people and the sort of various biases that exist within various business sectors, it would have been easier for me to go into aerospace engineering, given my background. Leonard did get a job in Hollywood as an assistant at the Creative Artists Agency, or CAA. Full disclosure, they represent me. It became his job to scout talent. And the way he broke into the industry was emblematic of its problem. A friend of a friend connected him. That wouldn't have happened if I hadn't gone to the school that I went to, if I hadn't been friends with someone who had gone to high school with someone who had found their way into the industry because of a family relationship, period. And that's not a great talent recruitment plan for any business sector. But that was, for the most part, the talent recruitment plan that did and does exist for Hollywood. Let's talk now about Blacklist. Tell me first the origin story. What exactly did you do in 2005? Yeah, so in late 2005, I was working for Leonardo DiCaprio's production company. My job was to find great screenplays and great writers that we could be in business with, that Leo could star in their movies or we could produce uh, their movies under Leo's aegis. And um, most of the scripts that I was reading were bad. You know, they, they, were, they, they weren't <laughs> terrible, right? But they weren't uh-huh. something that I could walk into my boss's office and slap down on his desk and say, hey, cancel your day and read this. This is the priority now. And were these vetted? Did they come from they did. They were coming respected from, agents? They were coming from the best agents in the business. And they sucked? Uh, again, I think suck is probably a little strong, but, um, but they weren't exceptional. And just by virtue of the fact that Leonardo, that Leo has a reputation for choosing good material, and, mm-hmm. you know, when, when he makes movies, they get made well and are very successful because he is very discriminating and rightly so. Um, we got sent everything because if you get Leo attached, the, the writer's immediately validated as somebody exceptional. The project's probably going to get uh, fast tracked. So, you know, everybody was trying to get our attention and, and by virtue of me being the fil- first filter there, my attention. 
I needed to find a solution to the problem. My mom was calling me every week asking about my LSAT scores and how long they were still valid, and I really didn't want to go to law school. <laughs> um, so I surveyed 75 of my peers in the industry who had jobs similar to mine. I asked them for a list of their 10 favorite unproduced screenplays. Several of them invited other people to participate. Mm. And I just took a survey. Mm-hmm. You know, Here are the scripts that are listed most amongst people's 10 best unproduced lists. Uh, I slapped a quasi-subversive name on it. I sent it out uh, via an anonymous email. Quasi-subversive. Well, it was a reference, obviously, to the the blacklist of the McCarthy era and a tribute to the writers who lost their careers uh, during that uh, sort of unfortunate part of Hollywood and American history. But it was also a a conscious inversion of the notion that black somehow has a negative connotation. Mm. Uh, You know, growing up in the Deep South, I remember being in English class and being told that, you know, if a cowboy has a black hat, they're probably the bad Bad guy. guy. And if they have the white hat, they're probably the good guy. Mm. And and I can remember thinking even at that young age, inductively, don't like it. Um, And at the time, I told myself that I one day I'll write a novel that inverts all of these assumptions. And, you know, I procrastinate quite a bit. Still haven't gotten to that yet. But I do like uh, to interrogate language whenever possible. And so that was sort of that was where the name came from. And so, Franklin, why did you do this survey through a subversive but also effectively anonymous email as opposed to just using your name? Um, I think I was worried that there may be negative consequences for doing so. Um, For asking people what are the scripts that you liked that didn't get greenlit. Well, I think that it was not subversive per se to ask people what they liked, right? Like that is a a conversation that happens in every conversation in Hollywood. Mm Mm-hmm. What was subversive was doing it at scale and presenting the information in aggregate to the entire town, right? That was, I think, the thing that no one had ever done before. And having done it and having it go viral uh, was, for me, didn't feel like a moment of triumph. It felt like a, a moment of great danger. Huh. Because? Like other people clearly had this idea but didn't do it. And maybe that was because it somehow violated an unwritten Hollywood rule that I just had, didn't know. You might lose your job. And they were going to run me out of town on rails and I'd have to go to law school. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so what did it teach you about the entertainment industry that your email asking people for their favorite scripts goes viral? Um, I think a few things. Well, the, the, the fact that it went viral showed me that, um, everybody had the same problem that I had. Like it wasn't that I was bad at my job per se, by not being able to find good scripts is that there was a systemic inefficiency that was preventing everybody from finding the good stuff that, that every single person shared the desire to find something incredible, but it wasn't easy. And so the second you present them with a more efficient way to do that, that they would embrace it. And, and then six months into that year, I got a phone call from an agent who was trying to pitch me a new client. And that call went sort of the same way any of those calls did, except that they ended it by saying, you know, look, don't tell anybody, but I have it on really good authority. This is going to be number one on next year's blacklist, which was <laughs> exactly. Uh, what but, a bullshitter. <laughs> hey, well, look, I think agents are... The reputation that agents have, I think, is often earned. Um, but I think their their job is to advocate for their client by hook or by crook. So he had no idea you had anonymously created this blacklist. Exactly. He was just uh-huh. trying to sell. 
he thought he could put this one over on me and probably had put it on over on other people without realizing that I was the person that had created it, who had no plans on doing a second list. Um, but it also was an indication to me that this thing that I created had value beyond me or other people finding material. Because if a person who was trying to sell their client was using the speculative notion of something being on the list, surely actually being on the list must have incredible value for the writer. Uh-huh. Um, and so it was, it, that was really the moment where I, I sort of made the decision to do it again the following year. Uh, the LA Times outed me as the person who created the list. Um, still don't know how they figured that out. Um, we journalists have our ways, yeah. I mean, yeah. exactly. And... Um, you know, but and I, and I think that, you know the following year, Juno and Lars and the Real Girl get nominated for Best Original Screenplay, which was remarkable because they've been the number two and number three script on the first list, and that created a virtuous cycle that continues to this day. And so that agent's lie is what opened your eyes to oh, I've got something of value here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I, it was a, it was a it was a dawning realization that I think accelerated with that very specific uh, moment. Once you achieve a viral moment, which is hard to do, how do you capitalize on it? Franklin Leonard admits he's still working on that. So it would require that I raise money. It would require that I go to people who did have access to to that kind of money and say, hey, I'm really good at picking winners. If you give me some money, I can pick winners with your money and then we'll all be successful. And how'd that go? Uh, People were not terribly compelled by that pitch. That's after the break. This is Art of Power. I'm Arthi Shahani. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. And the Oscar goes to Diablo Cody for Juno. What is happening? <laughs> um, this is for the writers. When Juno, for example, wins, do you remember that moment for you? Did you feel like you won? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I, there have been, I want to say it's 11 of the last 28 or 12 of the last 28 screenwriting Oscars have gone to scripts that were on the annual blacklist, mm. you know, four of the last 13 best pictures. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it definitely feels like a win for the company when those scripts uh, end up having great success, because it means that our picker is pretty good. The King's Speech, Ian Cannon. I think that the the most sort of gratifying win is probably um, David Seidler's Academy Award win for uh, the screenplay of The King's Speech. Speech has 12 Academy Award nominations this year, winning four Oscars. When I first read the script, I remember thinking, if they do this right, this could win the Academy Award. Um, 
And I also thought that I might be a little biased because I had a stutter as a kid. And so maybe I just identified with the story a little bit mm-hmm. more than most people would. Mm-hmm. And I remember at the time calling a bunch of agents and saying, hey, this is an amazing script. This guy does not have an agent. He just has a manager. You should sign him. Mm-hmm. And a lot of folks said, well, he's kind of old. I don't know. Like, how many more scripts is he really going to write? So much so that when the movie premiered at the Toronto Film Festival that year, he did not have an agent. Hmm. Um, and so to see him win, and I think he made a joke about, uh, being the world's longest overnight success. Um, <laughs> it felt good because it meant that even th- like people and material that people who knew what they were doing had overlooked, we hadn't missed. I'm loath to sort of claim too much credit for the success of the things on the, on the list because I don't want to be that guy. It's like a, a Hollywood tendency that I try to eschew, but you know, I mean, your point is you didn't produce it, but you picked it. I didn't produce you it, saw that it but was I good. helped. I, we shined a very bright spotlight on it, which made other people pay attention. And I think that, you know, Chris Terrio has said that Argo would not have gotten made if it wasn't for the blacklist. Um, Kelly Marcel has said that, uh, um, Saving Mr. Banks would not have made, gotten made if it wasn't for the blacklist. Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch said that he read The Imitation Game because it had been the number one screenplay on the blacklist. When Meryl Streep is asked how a movie came to her and her answer begins, there's this thing called the blacklist. Those are really surreal moments. Mm. But it means that the work that we're doing has been helpful to the people who I really admire, which are writers who are being wildly ambitious with the stories they're trying to tell. Leonard is being a little understated here, so let me reiterate. The platform that he created has become the birthplace for some of the biggest movies in recent years. And he wants to build on that initial success to bring a bigger and longer lasting change to Hollywood. So he turned the blacklist into a company. Initially, I was building or I'd sort of imagine building a, a website that, you know, industry members could go online, they could rate the scripts that they'd read, those ratings would aggregate to a sort of filterable, sortable list of the best things in whatever search they were looking for. And as my now CTO, Dino and I were building it, I realized that we could solve this other, frankly, more important problem, which was whenever I would go speak as the blacklist guy at universities or film festivals or anywhere, the first question that I would be asked by anybody in the audience was, hey, it's great that you built this thing that helps people who are already in the system get the credit and the money they deserve. But I am not in the system. I don't know anybody who works in Hollywood. I didn't go to the right schools or I didn't go to a university. How do I get my script to somebody who can do something with it? And I didn't have a good answer. And surely, if we all recognize that the lifeblood of the scripted business is the writer, that, that nothing, no one can do their job until the writer does theirs well, surely we should be recruiting and trying to find the best writers. You know, imagine trying to set, put together a roster for an NBA team with just the people known personally by the owners of the team. <laughs> right? Like, you're not going to win a game. You're probably not going to score a point. Right. And you, you're darn sure are not going to find the next LeBron James or, you know, Giannis, right? Like the Nigerian Greek seven footer who also has a good jump shot. Not going to find them based in your personal network. You need to go out looking. You need mm. scouts. Um, and that's frankly the way the industry has functioned for its 100 year history mm-hmm. um, in terms of, of talent recruitment, uh, particularly among writers. So, you know. So how do you make Hollywood more like basketball? Um 
you put together a winning team and just beat them until they have they realize they have to change their game plan. Um, or you start a scouting system and they all begin to rely on it, which is effectively what the blacklist has become. So what's an example of a needle in the haystack that you found through this process? Um, I think probably the most recent remarkable story is a script called The Novice by a writer named Lauren Hathaway. It was found by uh, a producer named Zach Zucker on the site. Uh, They went and got it made and it was nominated for five Independent Spirit Awards. There's another project that will uh, likely sell to a major streamer in the not-too-distant future from a writer who lives nowhere near New York or Los Angeles um, and didn't have to move in order to attract the attention of an Academy Award-nominated producer. In 2016, 2017, you were trying to raise funds to produce movies yourself. Yeah. Why did you want to do that? My belief was always that if we were good at picking winners, we should um, invest in those winners. We should put our proverbial money where our mouth is. Um, But putting your money where your mouth is when it comes to investing in movies requires a lot of money. And, you know, again, upper middle class kid, but I'm not sitting on an inheritance in in the nine figure range like a lot of other independent financiers in Hollywood right now. Um, And so it would require that I raise money. It would require that I go to people who did have access to, to that kind of money and say, hey, I'm really good at picking winners. If you give me some money, I can pick winners with your money and then we'll all be successful. Mm -hmm. Um, And how'd that go? And uh, people were not terribly compelled by that pitch. Um, No. no. And I think that I can speculate about a lot of those reasons. Um, But I think that one of them is fundamentally that when people invest in movies, the part of what they are paying for is getting to participate in the process of choosing which movies get made and how they get made and what stories get told. And again, if we think about what happens when the vast majority of commercial level independent film is financed by effectively plutocrats, you end up with a set of movies that reflect that worldview, right? Mm -hmm. Those movies are not being chosen by people who grew up lower middle class. Those movies are not being chosen by people who have real concerns about their bodily autonomy on a day-to-day basis. You find something out that is a little surprising to you and me as an outsider surprising to me. If you know how to pick the winners and everyone in Hollywood is saying Franklin Leonard's blacklist knows how to pick the winners. I don't get why you can't give wealthy people to give you money to then produce the winners. Yeah, it's a great question. And I don't have an answer and certainly not one that I'm willing to go on the record with yet. Um, <laughs> I, I would, I you would, can tell um, that's what I'm trying to get from you. I think it's worth asking the question generally, not as it applies to me trying to raise money, but as it applies to large swaths of the population who have compelling arguments for future success that don't receive investment that their peers would easily get under, under the same circumstance. I want to translate that. Like I see con- constantly in Silicon Valley where I've long been based, you know, the white male Stanford graduate with a mediocre idea able to access capital, whereas the woman of color with a very broad reaching idea um, with the potential for huge social impact, hardly being able to access chump change. Yeah. That exists in Hollywood as well. 
And you've then gone through that experience without naming names, because I don't think you'd want to name names. No, of course not. Can you give me an example of a meeting you took where you wide-eyed and optimistic about the ability to raise money get schooled? Um, I, don't, I don't know that there's any difference in the conversations that I have than anybody gets when they get passed. It's not for us right now. Content business is very uh, risky. And again, I, I think I have always been loath to speculate about the true reasons for passes. And ultimately, it doesn't matter, right? Like th- the people that I met with who I pitched the idea that, look, if we can pick winners, we should invest in the winners and here's how to do it. They weren't interested. I think the upside of that is that uh, it forced me to do some real thinking about um, how the industry is um, changing. Hmm. And um, I, I, I have a, a roadmap that now incorporates some of that, but is actually far more ambitious. Um, and I'm hmm. beginning to, um, to build in that direction now. There's an interesting resilience to you. Maybe it's something common to entrepreneurs, but I want to point it out in you specifically. You have this vision for what the blacklist can become, and then you get cold water thrown in your face. Like, nah, it's not going to happen this way. Yeah. And you don't just roll over and go away. Yeah, I... um. I think that that's something you have to have in Hollywood generally, right? Like Hollywood is a business of rejections. If you're a writer, if you're a director, if you're an actor, like you're constantly pitching yourself and most of the time you're hearing no, even when you're very successful. Mm. So I think some of that is just me mirroring the resilience of, of my peers and the people who I admire. Mm. Um, and I think w- instead of worrying too much about oh, these people didn't want to give me money or, oh, this is hard or, oh, you know, this is disappointing. I tend to think more about, wow, it's so much harder for everybody else than it is for me. I, I have had it very easy. And uh, if if those people can, can can sort of wake up and continue to fight the good fight, I can certainly make the effort to get up and fight the good fight to make it easier for them. That's gratitude. That's gratitude. I suppose I, I don't, you know, I, I, I'm very resistant to like all the woo woo West coast. Like, no, I know. Uh, I actually, stuff. even as I said it, like, I don't think I've ever posted something with hashtag gratitude, by the way. Yeah. But the reason I'm using that word is because you're basically saying I get up and keep going because I know I've got it good compared to most people. Yeah. But I think it's also, that is part of it. But I think for me, it's also that like, if other people have it worse than me, the least I could do is try to make it easier for them. And and when you put sort of work in that context, it, it makes it very easy to endure the difficulties because you're like, I'm going to endure these things so that other people don't have to. I don't know. That's how I rationalize it. I don't therapy helps like i don't know <laughs> do you, have you gotten better over the years at taking rejection i think i had a lot of training for rejection when i was steve urkel in in high school right like i i joke about it but it's true i think you know the the stakes of those rejections when you're in high school when you ask out 
the girl you have a crush on, when you want something really, really badly and it doesn't happen, they feel, to me at least, far more significant than any business deal is ever going to feel. And I think that, you know, when you've had, when you get laughed at by a few people you have a crush on in high school, we're not interested in investing in your business becomes almost like adorable, right? Like you're just kind of like, okay. <laughs> that rejection, What what is it really? It, it is one of two things. It is either a person saying, this isn't for us, and if we worked together, we don't believe it would be successful. They're, they're either right, in which case you've both been spared a negative experience, or they're wrong, and the best revenge is to keep moving and prove them wrong. Mm-hmm. So, like, the only takeaway from a rejection is keep it moving and wave to them when you figure it out. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, I, 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 it really, it's just really hard for me at this stage, and maybe it's just my advanced age. Uh, We're the same age, man. Thanks. Yeah, but but <laughs> I, I just can't worry that much about it anymore because... Uh, Every rejection gets me to another yes faster. And I just don't invest that much of my identity or my, or my emotions into someone's sort of celebration or approval of me. I just can't. Because other people are dealing with a lot more difficult stuff. Thus far, how have you changed the power dynamics in Hollywood? I, I think that's a question more appropriately a- answered by someone other than me. No, no, um, it's it's very appropriately answered by you. I would hope that that the industry better recognizes the value of writers in their financial and cultural success. I would hope that the industry recognizes that the way in which they have evaluated talent writ large has been deeply flawed and that we have led them to reconsider the ways in which they do evaluate that talent. And I would hope that we begin to recognize that, that audiences just want good stories well told. And those can be superhero movies made for $200 million, or they could be tiny, tiny, tiny uh, $1 million indies. But I, I just fundamentally believe that you know, there is a fundamental human desire to communicate via story and to have a better and deeper understanding of what it means to be human that is gained from them Um, and that there's a business to be built on top of that. Back to the Frederick Douglass example, he put a burden on himself to be photographed, to be objectified, to spread a message about who African-Americans are. Do you ever feel like excluded people, people of color, minorities, pick your term, do you ever feel like we shouldn't have that burden on ourselves, that the burden of telling stories just to prove to the majority that we are people too is a burden we shouldn't bother carrying? I, I don't think it's avoidable. I think that we all carry that burden, whether we're professional storytellers or not. I think that all of us walking in the world deal with that reality. I think that the folks who have historically not carried that burden should be doing more of the work of lifting that burden for the rest of us. But I haven't seen a great deal of evidence that that is in the offing.
my lessons from Franklin Leonard. One, sometimes your calling in life is not what you studied and it's not what you're getting paid to do. Do not just settle for working at McKinsey. Two, Draw power from rejection. Either the doubters are right and they've saved you a lot of trouble, or you get to flick them off when you succeed. Three, when somebody tries to cash in on your idea, take it as a sign. You have created value. Stick with it. This episode of Art of Power is our season finale. That's right. We have made it through the end of season two and have learned so much from extraordinary people along the way. And there are extraordinary people making this episode behind the scenes. Special shout out to Justin Bull and Hina Srivastava, superstar producers who make everything happen. Also, big shout out, special thanks to our intern, Sylvia Goodman. She's an excellent researcher and she helps me tremendously to prepare every single conversation. Thank you also to our executive producer, Kevin Dawson. With wit and grace, he makes sure we publish on time every week. Dear listener, if you like what you heard, please stop for just a millisecond and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. All right. It takes more than a millisecond, but you get what I'm saying. Or you can share your favorite Art of Power episode with a friend. Maybe it's this one. Maybe it's another. There is nothing like word of mouth to spread the news. And this show will continue to live on in this feed forever. Feel free also to tell me what you think. On Instagram and Twitter, I'm at Arty411. A-A-R-T-I 411. All right. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.